You were never out of the fight. You were created for a time such as this. And you are now preparing to be sent into battle. God is calling you to be his disciple, to be formed in virtue and holiness. He has appointed you as an ambassador of his kingdom. To go and represent him to his people. And he's enlisted you as a soldier of Christ. To be sent out to fight for the good in this world. You were not made to make excuses. time for you to take extreme ownership for your life, for all of your life. It's time to rise up and finally be the man or woman you were created to be. Follow God. Lead others. And never surrender. It is time to begin seeking excellence. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Seeking Excellence Podcast. This is your boy, Nathan Crankfield. It's great to be with you. So if you listened to my solo episode last week, uh, we talked a little bit about economics, which I know some of you are thinking like, man, I signed up for like the BLM talks and the gender theory stuff and like some Catholicism. Why are you talking about economics? Economics is boring. Well, this is why, because people are dumb. And I don't want there to be more dumb people. I want there to be less. And I think that having a basic understanding of economics is something that helps you to get from dumb to not dumb. Um, so that's my basic explanation. I think that a lot of people don't have this uh, knowledge. I saw uh, somewhere in my notes here. Uh, when did when did when was it? Oh, there it is. 178 school districts in Colorado, and only 25% require personal finance or economics classes. Only 25% require it. It doesn't mean the more don't have it. I definitely was not required to take it. And I was like, I have no idea what anything is. So last time, if you remember last episode, we talked a little bit about um, the founding of the country, why economics is most fitting with human rights and the rights that we were kind of founded upon, right? Here in the United States. Talked about what money is. And we talked about the invisible hand and uh, really talked about that when it came to iPencil. I hope some of you read that. Totally think that I forgot to link it now that I think about it. Um, but I hope that some of you read it and you you at least kind of picked up on, wow, this is pretty impressive. This is pretty crazy to think about how things are made and how just ridiculous uh, capitalism can make life, right? Because we have the ability now to specialize and do all these different things. So today we're going to be going through a bunch of different stuff. Um, and... I want to first kind of start with a, a basic kind of overview of what is capitalism. I actually created an outline today, so it should be a little bit more structured and less crazy. Then we're going to talk about what is socialism. Then we're going to talk about the Scandinavian illusion a little bit because I already talked about that in the Goddard government episode, but I think there's some important key points to hit on there. Then I want to talk about Catholicism and capitalism. And then we'll talk some taxes, some economic, more economic stuff. And then this is the one that's going to kind of flow into the old personal finance episode that will be next. And so, uh, again, thank you for tuning in today. If you haven't yet, which I know the majority of you have not, because hundreds of people will listen to this and tens of people are on our Locals page, I encourage you to come join us on Locals. 
if you listen to the podcast, if you're getting tired of me saying this, then you should feel the guilt in your heart that you should come at least join us for free on Locals, seekingexcellence.locals.com. If you feel it in your heart to be a supporter, we're going to be able to make better content. Um, I'll get to have more time to make outlines so I'm not just randomly saying all this stuff. And most importantly, you get to catch the weekly roundups, which I think are some of my best content. Um, and I'm going to have some some articles and writing and stuff that's going to be coming out here soon as well. And then we'll be doing some free stuff for people on there over time so I can start giving them you know, early access to things and once we start getting more swag and stuff like that, they'll have access to that. Even the free members of the Locals channel. All right. So today, what is capitalism? I wonder if you ask people on the street corner, what is capitalism? How many people do you think could actually give you a definition? I think very few. Obviously, they would give you what words, what comes to mind when you think of capitalism? I think most people would say greed, uh, big business, um, selfishness, uh, and a lot of negative connotations, right? Because that's that's often what it is. That's often how it's framed, is that the capitalists are the people who only care about themselves. They only care about profit. They only care about making money. It's greed. It's selfish. It's all these different things. Capitalism is based on four main things, and we hit on these a little bit last week. One is private property rights. Two is voluntary exchanges. Three is limited government. Four is rule of law. And uh, the, another way to look at it is there's kind of four main characteristics to it. Um, one is, again, re- repetitive here, voluntary exchange. Two is all parties benefit. And so when, you're, when you have capitalistic free exchange, you're making trades that are win-win. Right, so I pay for the bread because I believe that the bread is of value to the to the dollar point that it's that's listed as, right? That it's sold as the price, and the person who's making and selling the bread similarly believes that it's a good trade, right? So you win; it's a win-win situation because you're you're free to do whatever you want. And even if you want to make bad trades, you're free to do that because one of the key things is that people value different items, different commodities differently. Okay. And then number four, there's an incentive to innovate. I also want to give you a uh, Yarn Brooks definition because I think that his is really good as well. And so he says, capitalism is a social system based on the recognition and protection of individual rights, including property rights, in which property is privately owned. Now, juxtaposing that with socialism, in socialism, property is government owned. It is government controlled. They'll frame it, obviously, as saying, like, we, the people, own the means of production. We, the people, own all of these different things. We own the roads. We own the school systems. We own, um, we have control, right? We own all these different things. But really, it's just government control. It's government owned instead of things being privately owned. And so those are the, those are the two main options that you have. We have successfully, as, as a society, demonized the people who are advocates for privately owned things even though privately owned things are substantially better. This was proven, I think, in a very small way last week in the episode when I shared the part of iPencil that talks about how um, we're able to drill for oil or whatever you, you want to consider, right? Think of think of how difficult it is to like find iron in the in the earth or whatever you know you're looking for. Finding um, you know, talking about drilling for oil, shipping around the world, right, from Kuwait all the way over here for less then it costs to like deliver a piece of mail across the street because the government is involved in the mail, right? Because the government runs the U.S. post office. That is like the way to send mail. Then you have some other options now that have become available, obviously, with like UPS and FedEx and things like that. But the whole point is that when the government controls and runs things, it becomes inefficient, bogged down. One of the main natural law, uh, I think, uh, kind of natural reasons for that 
is that we're very, very um, unintentional and frivolous and wasteful in the way we spend other people's money. And so government agencies, when they're spending taxpayer dollars, are not spending their own money, their own capital. Their, their uh, salaries are locked in no matter what happens, no matter how efficient and effective the USPS is, the people who work there, their salaries are locked in. So they don't really give a shit if, if it's effective and if it's working well, if it's a well-oiled machine. Contrarily, people who, when, when you're building UPS and FedEx from the ground, you're, you have investors that care about you know the, your expenses to profit. And you personally, as the owner of that business, as the people who are starting you know, from the beginning, they have an incentive to actually make the company profitable. And so that means that they're going to work harder, make it as efficient as possible, charge good prices that make it profitable, but make more people want to come and, and spend their money there, right? And use their service. And so that's kind of the contradiction of the two. So, so socialism is a system in which the government owns the means of production, meaning that the government really owns and controls all these different industries, right? Whether you think of like the natural oil and gas industry, whether you think about the airline industry, the transportation in general, right? From trains, planes, automobiles. Um, they control factories that make things, food production. In a true socialist society, the government basically controls all of that stuff. Um, that, that's what communism is, right? If you think about like when China is at its most communist or um, the Soviet Union is a great example of this. And there's so much starvation in communist countries. When you think about there's, I think, 100 million people died at the hands of socialism in 2020 or not 2020, excuse me, in the 20th century alone and i think a large and i not think i know a large part of that is because of starvation so when you see these dictatorships there's a great series on netflix called inside the mind of a tyrant i believe is that what it's called um netflix oh man what's it called tyrant series let me see how to become a tyrant that's what it's called and so that's on netflix i really uh highly recommend it i thought it was really really well done um, and super, super good. So Netflix, How to Become a Tyrant is fire. Basically, what they do is they go through different, uh, different like, admin, not administrations is not the right word, but different tyrants. So they talk about Saddam Hussein. They talk about Hitler. They talk about Idi Amin uh, from the Ugandan dictator. And what's great about it is you get to see the similarities. You get to see how they all had socialist ideas, right? People will say... Uh, that uh, Hitler was an authoritarian on the right. But if you think about the right side of things, is the if it is the capitalist side, it doesn't even make sense for, for Hitler to take control of all the industries and the things that he did, right? It's, a, it's, it's anti-capitalist. So how could it be the right side if he was socialist in nature, right? Like Nazis stood for socialist. And they'll say that when you become authoritarian, that it's no longer socialist because it's not the people that control it, it's authoritarian. But there, therein lies the surprise of socialism constantly is that you have to have more and more control, more and more authoritarianism, more, more and more tyranny because it sucks and people don't want to live under it. And so that means that you have to start forcing, forcing more and more of it, right? Um, I don't know why I said forcing twice there, but this is what all the leaders over time have seen. Karl Marx and, and his you know pupils seem to believe that we can reshape human nature so that people will work without any incentives. And that doesn't make any sense. And, and it's been proven over and over again that it won't work. It's kind of this utopian, socialism is basically this utopian theory 
that has been tried and failed multiple, multiple times. And one thing, this is a, an analogy I thought of shortly after recording last week's episode. One second, real quick, water break. Was, if you think about, <laughs> thank you for the, your patience. I, I kind of juxtaposed this and it, it really kind of messed up my way of viewing uh, this church statement. But if you, if you understand, this is, this is me um, uh, definitely not speaking verbatim. I am paraphrasing the church's shift in opinion or view of Protestant in Vatican II. So basically, one of the things that kind of came out in Vatican II was uh, we had this change in the way that we viewed Protestants, where we said, you know what? And, and I, I don't mean to make this make light of this or say that this was wrong necessarily. I do have my opinions on it, which I'm going to share. But the, the church basically shifted and said, you know what? We've been really harsh on these Protestants, calling them heretics and all this stuff. And um, let's evaluate, you know, and, and, and really clarify our position on whether or not Protestants can go to heaven, which I think is good. I think that is true. Um, but we kind of shifted to where we, we said, let's be more ecumenical, meaning let's be basically more friendly to people of different denominations and be more open-minded towards them. Not saying that we need to water down Catholicism, but let's kind of, you know, cut out the heresy calling and all this kind of stuff, the apostates, and let's just be a little kinder in the way that we handle them. And one of the main causes and drivers behind that was they said, you know what, the reason why we should be this way is that Protestants today are not the same as Protestants in the 15, 16, 1700s. The reason being, those Protestants were, were Catholics that left the church to be Protestant. And they said, we shouldn't lump those in with people who are generations removed from that and have been raised after 10 generations of being Protestant, right? Being Protestant is just in their family. They said, it's not the same. And I would agree with that. It is different. This take and this analogy to socialism is um, really interesting for me. Because if you think about it, you think of like Karl Marx and the early adopters of progressivism and socialism. I think you could say that those people kind of coming up with this theory are different than the people that you see today. They're not the same in that they were kind of theorizing about something that really hadn't been tried yet. Now, when you take it to modern day socialists, the biggest complaint and criticism of those people and what I think truly makes them immoral, immoral is that you, you now have seen the theory in practice and seen what it has led to, right? We, we've seen what it leads to. So how can you still, you know, be a proponent of a, of a theory, of a social theory, of a social system that just absolutely has destroyed people? Right. And so, yeah. So I just looked it up. How many people have died under communism? How many people died under communism in Russia? This, this work, the black book of communism written by Harvard university press cited 20 million deaths there alone. But many counts of the Bolshevik butcher's bill exceed 33 million. Again, some of these are because you have to kill people who dissent, some who do not agree and who speak out against the system, because as the system's failing, you kind of see this continual um, striving to say, oh, it just needs more time. We just need more effort. We just need more cooperation from all of the citizens. Um, you know, that's why you use the term comrades, because it's like you are your brother's keeper. Like, think of the other people. 
uh, you have to work for nothing because it's for the good of the, the, the collective good and all this other stuff. And so um, the Black Book of Communism said that 94 million people died. 65 million in the People's Republic of China, 20 million in the Soviet Union, 2 million in Cambodia, 2 million in North Korea, 1.7 million in Ethiopia, 1.5 million in Afghanistan, 1 million in Vietnam. And so you get to see, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. There's a lot of people who have died from it. And still, you have people who are promoting it. To me, I think that makes them different, but I think it actually makes them worse. Now, I think bringing the analogy back home with Protestants, has Protestantism made the world any better? It's led to the French Revolution. It led to, I think it's led to the widespread use of relativism we have. Relativism in a secular sense is just Protestantism without Christianity. But it's kind of the same basis. The individual is the is the main decider, right? It's just you and God, or it's just you and the government. Like it's just it's just the same kind of philosophy. And, and I'm again, I'm not getting into a Catholic versus Protestant debate. I've already done that. Um, and we'll do it again here soon, but that's not what today is for. But anyways, forget that. Um, the socialists today, you think of AOC, you think of Bernie Sanders, they've seen what happens in socialist societies, and yet they still want to promote more and more of that today. That to me is really, really hard to handle and, and hard to, difficult to understand. But you can start to see how we as Catholics, we can't support that kind of thing, right? That this, this socialist regime that eventually has to become communist because you have to keep people in line and you have to keep trying these failing strategies and then kills people either through starvation or capital punishment or um, work labor camps and all this other stuff that you have to start doing because this shit don't work, fam. We know it. This is not a surprise to anyone. And this, you know, I don't want I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and then I'll come back to the Scandinavian illusion stuff. But this quote from William F. Buckley um, it is included in this article that I'm going to I'm going to link here, which is uh, can a Catholic be a social can a Catholic be a capitalist by Trent Horn? And he quotes William F. Buckley here. He says, William F. Buckley put it well, quote, the trouble with socialism is socialism. The trouble with capitalism is capitalists. Understand that again. The trouble with socialism is socialism. The trouble with capitalism is capitalists. So yes, there is a point, obviously, you can have bad people in both systems. You can have bad people in capitalism. The capitalists, the people in the society, can still be corrupted, still make bad decisions, still become um, power-hungry, greedy, and all that stuff. That is possible. But the system itself is not flawed. The system of socialism itself is flawed, and that's one of the biggest difference differences. Um, so yeah, another great quote from here that that Trent says is basically, you know, he his his uh, summary at this is very upfront, right? Um, he says, you know, when some people hear that the Catholic Church teaches, quote, no one can be at the same time a good Catholic and a true socialist. I can't even say the word that is the church document that that comes from. Um, Quadragesimo? No, that's not right. Quadragesimo. Anno 120. They ask in reply, but how can a good Catholic be a true capitalist? Or, but can a good Catholic be a true capitalist? And he says, as if capitalism were a sin, opposite yet equal to socialism. But while the Catholic Church teaches that no Catholic could subscribe even to moderate socialism, that's from Mater et Magistra 34, it has never said the same thing of capitalism, which it views as something that can be compatible with Catholic moral principles. 
So that's that's basically the conclusion, right? He he gives the conclusion very much up front. Capitalism is not intrinsically evil and is not to be condemned in itself. Um, and then it said, second, following Leo the Thirteenth, the state should make sure free markets adhere to norms of right order by correcting violations of these norms. And so again, this kind of goes back to what I said last week, where you have to have, and even what I said this week, that the rule of law and limited government, but a government is necessary to actually enforce good moral capitalism in a society. Not enforce, but allow, I should say. Um, yeah, so P- Pope uh, Pius XI, he says, admitted that like all errors, socialism contains some truth, but the truths of socialism, which are shared by Christianity, thus making them not strictly socialist in nature, are not enough to redeem a system that, he writes, quote, is based nevertheless on a theory of human society peculiar to itself and irreconcilable with true Christianity, end quote. And so uh, I love this this line from Trent Horn here. He says, so not only are Catholics forbidden to be socialists and free to be capitalists, they are free to criticize capitalism without becoming socialists by default. And so this is what I'm talking about. You have this kind of spectrum, right? And where you have socialism on one end and capitalism on the other. And uh, I think too many Catholics think that you have to be like 50-50 down the middle or that you have to be leaning more and more towards socialism. And so that kind of leads back to what I'm talking about here. So let's talk about the Scandinavian illusion. So you have these um, countries, you know, Norway, Sweden, uh, in, in Scandinavia that are often contributed or painted as these kind of socialist utopias, right? That they've, they've done it right. And uh, it's often used. It's a lie. Bernie Sanders says it all the time. AOC, they point to it. And it's just kind of crazy. But there's these great um, kind of scales that are used to grade a country's economic freedom. And so economic freedom is based mainly on two different things. Um, there's different economic freedom indexes. And if I remember, I will uh, include this in there as well. And so economic freedom is based mainly, I mean, it's based on a bunch of different things and I'll read more of them, but two, two main factors is wealth redistribution and regulations. So wealth redistribution, you can think of as like social safety nets. Think of healthcare, think of welfare, food stamps, government provided housing, things like that. The other is regulation. So this means how strict are the the rules on business, right? So if you think of um, something that was really funny, if you listen to the uh, State of the Union last week, is uh, President Biden talked about how um, he was so mad at the oil and gas industry, who he says made record profits last year, and they refused to reinvest that in U.S. Um, to build new uh, drilling sites and, and to continue to utilize the natural resources we have here in the U.S. But he 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 admitted in the next sentence that they're afraid that he that he's going to scrap um, oil and gas, and so they're like, "Yeah, we're not investing here because you're gonna you're, you have so many strict regulations. You've made it so impossible for us to do it. It takes years to build these new." Um, drill sites and all these different things that go into that. And he, he said, they're afraid that we're going to scrap it in 10 years. And people literally like the whole audience laughed at him because he's so dumb to not be able to realize like, yeah, they're not reinvesting in, 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 you know, using natural resources here in the U S and they're like, yeah, because you, you told them they can't. And you've made them fear that you're going to just totally nix, um, fossil fuels. 
So it's like, why would they? Why would they reinvest it here? It makes no sense. It's just stupid. So the Heritage Foundation is, is one of the many organizations that kind of does these rankings. And you see here, I mean, as you look at the list, the countries that are listed free, which is, uh, means they have a grade from 180 to 100. Singapore is number one. Switzerland's number two. Um, Ireland's number three. New Zealand, Luxembourg, Taiwan, and Estonia. Those are the top seven countries. If you look then mostly free, eight, uh, the score is 70 to 79.9. You've got basically all the remaining Scandinavian countries. Finland is number nine. Denmark, Sweden, Iceland, and Norway are all in the top 14. Canada is listed higher than us. We are listed all the way at number 25. Below the UK, below uh, South Korea, below Germany even. So think about that. I mean, we believe think of how much capitalism is is railed upon in the u.s and this shows you we're the 25th most capitalist country in the world when you look at economic freedom so to to think that and think of how much we have been punishing ourselves another thing that i learned in my courses is is one of the problems with the way africa and a lot of these developing countries are um trying to become more wealthier basically one of their problems is they're they're modeling their governments after the U.S. and Europe now when the U.S. and Europe got rich, we got wealthy when we were deregulated, right? The, the wealth was built in the U.S. when we had greater economic freedom. We're, we're seeing stagnation and recessions and all this bullshit and all these problems that we face, the, the ridiculous inflation that you saw in the 80s under the Carter administration. All of that came because we started to change the way that we operated as a government starting really in the 60s, and then we just continued to increase and increase and increase. So Lyndon B. Johnson, FDR, did incredible damage when it comes to this by just increasing our uh, wealth redistribution, increasing our taxes, increasing our regulations. Um, so yeah, so you can see here, and then you see, like you go down to the countries that are mostly unfree, um, and then you have countries that are just repressed, right? That have very, very little economic freedom. Iran, Zimbabwe, Sudan, Cuba, Venezuela, North Korea, Ethiopia. And these are places where, I mean, poverty is just um, the Congo, China. Um, poverty is just unreal, right? There, there's, no, there's no mistaking. There's no coincidence in the fact that these countries with less economic freedom, Russia, South Africa, Cambodia, Rwanda, that they have Ghana, immensely more poverty than what you see in Taiwan, Singapore, Switzerland, Ireland, right? There's no coincidence there. This is, this is how it works. And so the other, the other kind of categories that's used to, to analyze this, um, and you can kind of see a country's rankings, right, on certain specific things, it'll show you. Uh, but they talk about your property rights. They talk about judicial effectiveness, government integrity, the tax burden, so government size, um, tax burden, government spending, fiscal health, uh, regulatory efficiency, so business freedom, labor freedom, monetary freedom, and then open markets, trade freedom, investment freedom, financial freedom. So the four main categories are rule of law, government size, regulatory efficiency, open markets um, for, for this, this scale. The tax burden is one of our worst. Uh, that's where we're red. We actually have really good property rights and pretty solid judicial effectiveness. Our scores for that are really good. 
our government spending is at a, a score is 54.5. So absolutely trash. Our trade freedom is, is red or decrease over recent years um, and is at 75. Our labor freedom is at 75. Business freedom has increased and, and is decently high for us. Um, but yeah, you can see our regional ranking and just our, our the, the Americas. Um, yeah, it's kind of sad that we're not even number one in the Americas. Canada, Chile are both higher than us. And then you see as you scroll down, Nicaragua, Dominican Republic, Ecuador, countries where you just have extreme poverty, right? Honduras are really low. And yeah, as you scroll higher, the countries get more affluent and wealthy. But you see a lot of these developing countries, as I said, are trying to mimic socialist regimes, big government, uh, heavy tax burdens on their citizenry, heavy regulations. And they're trying to mimic us, but they're mimicking the stuff that we're doing that's blowing it, right? And so if you think about like uh, a, a rich family, right? It's kind of like the, <clears throat> if, if you've ever seen the uh, Parks and Rec, what's the name of the, the rich family in Parks and Rec? Oh man, what's their name? Giancarlo or something like that is the one dude. Oh, and his sister's the worst in Parks and Rec. <laughs> what's their name, dude? Um, I can't remember. Oh, but you know what I'm talking about. Where, where the guy's like, money, please. Or the girl's like, money, please. I forget what their freaking name is. Um, but it's, it's what's his name? Uh, the best friend of Aziz Ansari's character. Anyways, you, you see these like rich kids, right? Who end up ruining and spoiling their family's wealth. That's kind of what we're like. Is that like our, our founders, our founding fathers developed this society that was able to thrive. We got rid of slavery after 87 years and we started just bumping, dude. Black poverty rate was going down decreasingly until uh, the 60s. Um, you had poverty rates, you know, the, the country was just, we were thriving. We developed, that's when the world for the first time ever developed a middle class and we were just crushing it. And then we had these rich kids who just assumed like shit's always like this. And then they blow the family fortune and they end up in poverty. And that's basically what we're like and what we're in the middle of doing. Now, imagine being the uh, a kid that comes from a really poor family that sees these, you know, great grandchildren of you know people who worked from nothing and created the family fortune. You're, you're you're a poor kid, and you come and you're watching them just blow all this money and make all these horrible financial decisions. That's what these developing countries are largely like. They're watching us do these things and make these horrible, economically suicidal decisions. And they're like, yes, let's implement that because they're rich. And so if we do what they do, perhaps we will be rich too. But it's sad because we're like, no, you're blowing it because we're blowing it and you're just doing what we're doing. Another great thing that I want to talk about in this with um, Catholicism and capitalism is uh, Dr. Gary Wolfram was one of our um, speakers recently as well. And he had this great quote that he kind of opened up with. He said that instead of evaluating the wealthiest people in a particular system, we should look at the quality of life of their poor. We should look at the quality of life of their poor. And this, again, I think I said this last week, but one of the main reasons why we should be pro-capitalism is because capitalism lifts people out of poverty. Capitalism lifts people out of poverty. If you look at the, the, the money per capita, right, the average like family's income, in these different countries, there is no coincidence that in other countries, it's a substantially lower than it is in the U.S. And in other countries, 
that are open markets, right? So in South Sudan, one of the countries that was red, mostly not free, the average is $1,200 a year. In Rwanda, it's $2,200. In Indonesia, it's uh, $2,000. The world average is around $17,000. In the US, it's $64,000. Again, you'll have people who say, oh, it's just because we're you know oppressing other people. It's not. It's not. If we wanted to oppress and, and dominate and extort from other countries, we could do that immediately. We could take over all these countries, take over all their natural resources, basically become an empire again, right? And just start dominating these countries and start cranking out oil in Canada or in um, you know some of these African countries and become the number one supplier of oil in the world. And we have so much money, but we don't do that. Why don't we do that? Because it'd be immoral, right? Why don't we just take over Kuwait? Because we don't want to, because we believe in freedom. But yet, because of our capitalistic society, because of our generally capitalistic society, because of our semi-free markets, we have this, this great life that we get to live. And so that's why we should be pro-capitalism, because capitalism draws people out of poverty. And so he started to go on and kind of describe what poverty looked like um, in the U.S., but he kind of took us through this kind of time period, right? If you think about houses in the 1700s, he talks about this. Houses in the 1700s back in the day. If you go back and you see any of these old houses, they never had closets. And his point was they didn't have closets because they didn't have enough clothes. They didn't have enough stuff to need. There was no storage units in the 1600s because people just didn't have enough stuff to even need it. Now we have so much stuff that you can become a millionaire owning a place that people can come and rent more space to fit their shit that they can't fit in their house. Think of how crazy that is. And so that's why we have the higher, we have a higher quality of life than the wealthiest person 100 years ago. I talked about this a little bit last week as well. Okay. It is absolutely wild how good we have it. And so he talks about poverty and capitalism. This is from 2011. He said that uh, 40% of people living in poverty in capitalistic countries, I think it was in the US specifically, 40% of people living in poverty in the US own their own home. The average home was three bedrooms with one and a half baths. 80% of people living in poverty in the U.S. had, in 2011, had air conditioning. Think about that. 80% have air conditioning. Air conditioning, dude. People, think of how much better your life is. For, so, so that means that I, I would guess, let's say I'll give you that 80% of the 40% uh, have their own home and air conditioning. Think about how crazy that, that's a third, a third of the people living in poverty in our country own a house that has air conditioning. Wild. Two thirds have more than two rooms per person in their house. So we're not living in, in tin huts. People living in poverty in, in first world countries have, the majority of them have more than two rooms per person in their house. 97% of people living in poverty in the U.S. in 2011 had a colored television. 89% have a microwave. Think of how crazy that is. These people have ovens. I bet 100% of them, 99.9% .9 of them have running water. All of them, if they're shot or have a heart attack, can go to the emergency room and be treated. I mean, just think about how crazy that is. He shared some other some other stats in 19 in 1978 China when it was the People's Republic of China went from total central planning 
to open markets, to start the opening markets, not open markets. In 1981, 88% of their population lived in poverty. In 2019, 0.10%, 0.1%, excuse me, same thing, 0.1% of their population lived in poverty. The life expectancy in that same time in less than 40 years went from 65 to 77. In India, they began to open markets in the 90s. In 1993, 46% lived in extreme poverty. The gross national income was $1,350 a year, and 59 was the average life expectancy there. In 2019, 1.5% lived in extreme poverty. The gross national income rose from $1,350 to $6,930, and the life expectancy rose from 59 to 70. That's in 26 years of open markets. That's absolutely wild. And so this, I said this last week, I believe, if, if you knew you were going to be born the poorest person in any country, you would pick a free country. Because imagine what it's like, and you think about like Mother Teresa in the, in the 20th century, the poorest of the poor, you, she didn't come to America. She didn't go to Europe. She didn't go to Canada. She had to go to these places that were under extreme taxation that were under extreme regulation that were did not have a uh, rule of law that that had big governments and bureaucrats and people who were just taking and taking and taking from people and crushing their spirits so um yeah it's pretty wild so income earned by the bottom 10% of a nation most free countries are 10 times that of the least free so the Earn, the income earned by the bottom 10% of people in free countries is typically 10 times that of people in the bottom 10% of not free countries. That's some pretty crazy stuff. So why should we as Catholics support capitalism? Because we're not dumb. And because we recognize that this is the best way to create a society. Uh, John Paul II once said that profit has a legitimate role in the function of a business but it's not the only indicator that a business is doing well. So that means that business has to be both ethical and profitable, right? That is a good thing. It, be, it can become ruthless and lead to human inhuman exploitation, <clears throat> but it's not naturally so. It doesn't have to be that way, right? Uh, John Paul II reaffirms the teaching of previous popes who said that the church not only does not offer the world a Catholic system of economics, it can't offer such a system, he says. So we have to be willing to think about these things and figure it out. And this is why we we have to vote, right? We have to talk about the importance of this stuff. Um, economics can answer questions such as what gives rise to the wealth of nations. And this is why we should care about these things. One, one thing that was really important to me or was really kind of eye-opening for me was in class one day, somebody said, do you think Bill Gates, with the billions and billions of dollars that he's made and the billions and billions of dollars that he's given away, do you think that Bill Gates, the philanthropist, will ever do more good than Bill Gates, the businessman? And if you think about it, the way that we look at business people in today's world, we look at them, he's, they're demonized until they become philanthropists, right? But until you start to give money away, then you finally start to become good. But we have to reevaluate that and start looking at the people who produce that much value in the world as good. Yes, Jeff Bezos is the richest man alive. Jeff Bezos has transformed all of our lives. And so that's why he's the richest man alive. We have to stop looking at it as all of its exploitation 
and um, unfair, right? Now, you can criticize, again, capitalism. You can criticize the business practices of Apple, of Microsoft, of Amazon, especially in places that they utilize slave labor and that they utilize child labor. That is wrong, and that should be fixed. Um, and we should have, there should be laws in those countries that forbid companies from doing such things. But if you think about the, the jobs that, that they have created, if you think about not just the jobs, but also the impact on lives, the impact on education and learning that the computer and the internet has done for us, it's absolutely incredible. And so we have to take the entire picture into mind and, and keep in mind that it's bigger than just one thing. And that's going to be kind of where I pick up and what I want to talk about next. Um, but again, I've gotten, you know, about 40 minutes deep into this episode. And so I think I'm going to call it here and then we'll do another piece on this um, next week. And so we'll continue to talk about this. I love it. I hope that you guys are enjoying learning about some of this stuff. I hope that it is helpful and has um, opened your eyes to some of these different things. I'm excited to uh, continue going deep into some of these topics next week. We will be covering more on taxes and we'll be talking about Henry Hazlitt's book, Economic in One, Economic in Economics in One Lesson. Holy cow. I think I just had an aneurysm. Hey, it's been great being with you today. I hope that you have a super blessed week. And remember that all of this stuff impacts the way that you view the world. And so I hope that you think about this in a way that you can think about how you can create value in your community by creating jobs, by, cre by, by producing, right? By being a productive member of society. The more money you make, the more that you have to uh, give away, the more that you have to share with people who are in need, the more that you can, can buy things to stimulate the economy, all of that does good, right? We think about how important it is to support local business. Well, if you have no money, you can't support local business. If you have nothing to trade and produce, if you don't produce, you'll have nothing to trade with, right? So the work matters. This, this leads into professional and financial excellence. That's why I'm sharing all of this stuff because this is kind of our mindset and our approach. This is our philosophy I think this is our philosophy and the base understanding our foundations for understanding why it's so important for us to be active members of society, how our work contributes to us being active members of society, and how our financial excellence through our budgeting, our discipline, our investing, how that also contributes to that. And so I hope that you find this helpful, and I hope that it will help you to be less of a goofball when it comes to economics, and you'll be able to have some of these conversations of why socialism is wrong, why it's bad, why we should strive to be capitalists. Um, and obviously let our ethical morals, our Catholic morals, um, lead the way of how we view business and profits. So uh, continue to fight hard to be your best. Make time for prayer, exercise, and reading. Be sure to continue learning this week. Move your body, get outside, and seek after your potential. God bless you.